My name is Hans. I get to serve as one of the pastors here. Very good to be with you this morning for this first Sunday in June. And I will start out with, I think, a group confession, something for all of us, that I think most of us in the room, if not all of us in the room, are very bad at, which is admitting we're wrong. Admitting we're wrong. Recognizing our own fault. We like to think that it's just the kids who do this. The kids in our midst or the kids in the kids ministry where uh, when asking them what happened, the first word that comes out of their mouth is a sibling's name or whatever else it might be. But honestly, I've been around enough of you to know that often the first word that comes out of your mouth is somebody else's name too. You go, well, I wouldn't be doing this if so-and-so wouldn't have been so annoying. Or I wouldn't, yeah, but like we just say it with more reserve. So it just feels, you know, it feels better. But it's the exact same thing that we see in kids. All of us, all of us. Everyone, if you're here today and you're not a Christian, if you're here today and you are a Christian, every single person has the everyday temptation to hide fault, to push it away, to act like it is no big deal, or to make someone else be accountable, or at least try to make it seem like someone else would be accountable, even when it really is our fault. And yet, here we have the Lord Jesus in John chapter 8 not letting the religious leaders of his day get away with their fault. He has no problem sharing with them their fault. And we're going to be in this passage for a few weeks, the kind of the end of chapter 8 where he's again speaking to them, and they're out in public. He's having these conversations. He'll move to being the, uh, that he sets people free. We read about him setting people free. Confusion over those who believe and those who don't. Confusion over who Jesus is or who we are. That continues. Children of the Father and children of the devil. All of that finishes out our end of chapter 8 over these coming weeks. And so what we get to see today is just that. How Jesus really just puts his finger on the matter at hand. And he's going to keep doing this. And because we're going very slowly through John 7 and John 8... Forgetting maybe that this is really happening in the span of a little bit of time. It doesn't take, it's not an eight-week interaction. We're actually stretching out even one interaction into multiple weeks. We hear Jesus share about dying in sin. So what we will see today, and Jesus again leaving these religious leaders without excuse, we will see an accusation made. From Jesus toward them. This is not the accusation of the religious leaders toward Jesus. We will again see, because in all of these John passages, it seems, where there is this back and forth, 
Jesus says something and it's met with a gigantic question mark. Huh? And they respond to what he's saying, but they're responding incorrectly. And then we'll see Jesus bring the clarification on what's really going on here. So the accusation toward them, not toward Jesus. Confusion about what he's saying, because that always happens. And then the clarification Jesus brings... And there is an eternal weight, an eternal significance to this clarification. But we start with the accusation. The accusation is this, that those who don't believe in Jesus' person and work will die in sin. And if you even look at the passage, it's just a few verses, but you notice he starts by saying die in sin, and then later he says die in sins. Right? And, and I, I know it, 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 I don't want to parse over an S or singular or a plural, but there's an important part of this going on that is the ultimate sin for the leadership of the time. But Jesus says, I'm going away. You will seek me. Look for him. You will die in your sin. Where I'm going, you cannot come. Remember, he's already said this before, and everyone's like, what do you mean where you're going? Yeah, what do you mean? I, I can be there. So they will, we'll see the confusion in just a second. But let's just start with 21. Jesus is leaving this world. People will be looking for him. They'll be unable to find him. Remember the confusion that came just a little while earlier. They go, is he going to go to the dispersion? Is he going to talk to the Gentiles? Is he going to, how would you mean we can't find him? Of course we can find him. We, we know where he came from. We know his address. They're bringing accusations about where he lived. No prophet can come from there. The Messiah doesn't come from there. They're, they're clear with Jesus' physical origins, but they're really not because they forget about Bethlehem. He goes, you're going to find me. But then he says, you'll die in your Sin. That sounds like a pretty hefty accusation. I would guess most of you don't walk around, like you show up at maybe work tomorrow, and you go, hey, you know what I learned about you yesterday? That you're going to die in your sin. Paul, try it. You can try it if you want. Just go to, you know, I just don't, I just don't think that it's necessarily the, the equation that we use where we go, yeah, yeah, yeah. This is what I learned about you. You're going to die in your sin. Isn't that cool? Just not how we're going to roll. So what is it to die in sin? To die in sin. Well, Jesus is going to share about how if the Son has set you free, you're truly free. He's going to talk about how you are, uh, if not, you're a slave. The religious leadership goes, what do you mean we're, gonna, we're, we're slaves to no one? We have Abraham. And he begins to talk about slavery to sin. And how you're freed from sin through, through trusting in Christ and his work. You're abiding in his word. You're free from sin. The slavery to sin is what he speaks about there. So we're in this whole idea of dying in sin and dying in sins. And, he, and Jesus doesn't just mean. He doesn't just mean a specific act. I would guess, even those of you here this morning who are Christians, there has likely been some sin committed this morning by something thought or not thought, said or not said, done or undone, whatever might have happened. There is probably something that has gone on since you woke up that has been less than stellar. 
And so we might hear this and go, oh my gosh, I, I, there is this part of us, especially when we're younger in the faith and we read these passages, we go, I don't want to be the one who like sins and then immediately dies because maybe I'll get stuck. And there are some false beliefs that would even say like, hey, be sure that you get the, the, the sins you did like, on, like before you die, just be sure you confess those because you don't want to be sinful and then die. Jesus isn't speaking about you're going to be like in, in sinning and then you fall over dead. He's speaking about the entire condition of a person. That they exist in a specific realm without him. And that realm is sin. But there is a specific sin that these people are committing. The specific sin that these people are committing that is so egregious is the rejection of the Messiah. They will not listen. They do not respond. And they are seeking to kill him. That's what they are doing. Yet, they can't even do what they had planned on doing because it isn't the time. And so even though they want to kill Jesus, and he's standing right there, and they're talking to him, and they've sent officers, and the officers go, I'm not going to go because he's really talking like no one we've ever heard. They can't apprehend him because it is not God's appointed time for Christ to die. The ultimate sin, disbelief in the Son of God, and we know that because first we've seen it. We've seen disbelief entirely from the religious leadership. But if you actually, we're going to start having, we're getting kind of, we're not in the middle of John, but we're going to start leaning back and leaning forward because now we're kind of getting to the spot where we're turning and we need to kind of see what Jesus is alluding to that's coming later. We're going to keep going back to the things that he said prior or what John has said about Jesus prior. And so we're getting to the spot where we're going to kind of move back and forth in John. Hopefully by the time we're done, we feel pretty comfortable with the book, even if it's taken us 400 weeks to get through it. I don't think it's going to be that long. I don't, I don't, I don't think so. I don't think you guys would still be here if it were a 400-week study in the Gospel of John, but maybe you would. But if you read in John chapter 16, Jesus is speaking about the Holy Spirit in John chapter 16, and he speaks about what happens when the Spirit comes. And he says this, And when he comes, he will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. Look at verse 9. Concerning sin because they do not believe in me concerning sin because they do not believe in me that the ultimate sin is the rejection of Jesus the most serious sin is the rejection of Jesus the most serious problem anybody has is the rejection of Jesus that is the main issue Concerning righteousness, because I go to the Father, and you'll see me no longer. This sounds thematic to what he's even saying in John chapter 8. Concerning judgment, because the rule of the world is judged. There's a statement I use in marriage counseling quite often. I've shared it with you before, and I'll share it with you again, where I say, I'm so glad you guys want to get married, or whatever I say. So glad you want to get married. This is great. You know, I'm looking forward to long, happy life for all of you. Be wonderful. I say, Who you marry is the second most important decision you will ever make. What is the first? 
most important decision that you will ever make. And sometimes it's like, uh, I don't know, like, like it's, it, it, well, because, you know, it's not to take the, the, the Bible doesn't line, line it out like that, right? Like, what is the first most important? Like, it's not in the index. You can look, but like, if you look for first most important decision I'll ever make, it's not in the index. So you won't necessarily find it. And so we stand there for a moment, and I go, no, the first most important decision you will ever make is who is Jesus? That, that's it. Who is Jesus? That is the decision from which other decisions are made. And so the first most important decision you'll ever make is who is Jesus? And that is the issue at hand as Jesus speaks to these leaders. Where he says, you will die in your sin. You will look for me, but you will die in your sin because they have hard-heartedly rejected the person and work of Jesus. Now, we have seen in John to this point that there are some who do have interest. They are listening. Nicodemus has now shown up twice, right? He's shown up at the beginning. We hear you're a man sent from God. It's in that that we get our most famous John verse, John 3.16, in that exchange, and the, the dialogue and the debrief, all of that. We, we remember that. That's a conversation he has with Nicodemus. Nicodemus just showed up not long ago trying to essentially remind people that, hey, if Jesus really is doing wrong, we should give him a trial. We should let, you know, like, like, like let it work itself out because we don't treat anybody like this. Our law doesn't treat people like this. Nicodemus has shown up. Nicodemus is hovering around Jesus. In fact, that might be some of your story. Even how you came to faith in Christ is you, maybe you started at a Bible study in college or maybe you started where there was just somebody who would bring you around and you would hear conversations about the Lord and they seemed different. The way maybe somebody spoke about God was different. The way they spoke about grace and sin and forgiveness was different. And it kind of kept you engaged. That's the work of the Spirit. Drawing you toward the Lord Jesus. It's the work of the Spirit that does that. As you go, well, what is this? Tell me more. Tell me more. I'm reading a book right now uh, on, on global missions. And the author's basic premise is we're really trying very hard to cut corners in drawing people to the Lord, not that they can do it, but like our, our missions efforts are short-circuited because we do not put in the hard work of language learning and culture learning so that people, we can have real conversations with them about Jesus in a language that they would understand, being aware enough of the nuances of that culture that when they say something, we know what they're saying. So that we don't misinterpret belief for disbelief or disbelief for belief. Because we're just not sure enough the hard work that it takes. Because you have to, his point is, you have to be able to have ongoing conversations with people about the ways that they feel about Jesus and what they're hearing and what they're reading and what's being said. The implications of what that might be for their family, for their life. And so right, all of that is, is God drawing people. But if you just go, nope, he isn't who he says he is. You've walled off your heart from the Lord. And only the Lord can break it down. Now I would say, and, and, and if, you're, if you're with me, kind of a, a, a bleeding heart, you care about people. I'm not, you might be surprised I care about people, but I do. Um, uh, like, thank you, Christian. Um, so, you hear this message 
And perhaps even you here this morning have a problem with the, this phrase, the exclusivity of Christ. We go, how, how arrogant is it to, to tell somebody that because of a decision, one decision they make about Jesus, that they are going to die in their sin? To disregard everything else, everything else they've done, the kind of people they are, how generous they might be, how loving they are, the fact that many kids would rather have them as parents than you, Hans, as their dad. Like, all all of that aside, you say this one thing is the deal breaker. That feeling of exclusivity can make that hard. We just go, it can't be. But, Even when we do that, even when we do that, there's actually something unique happening, which is is that we, we are putting our knowledge of right and wrong and good and bad, evil and non evil, up against God. The moment we hear the gospel message and provide our judgment upon it, we are saying, What I know is better than what God has revealed. When we hear statements of Jesus and we just go, that just doesn't feel fair. We are taking our experience and applying that to Jesus. The light of the world. The true light, which gives life to everyone. It has come into the world. We're saying, no, my, my darkness is probably more aware of you than your light is. My fogginess and my temporalness is is superior to you, the creator of everything. Rather than say, yes, Lord, I surrender all. We just go, I'm not so sure, Jesus. It's not how I would have done it. Of course it's not how you would have done it. If it. If you would have done it, then you'd be the only one in heaven because you're the only one who's perfect. And of course, they don't even, listen to this, they hear Jesus' claim, he accuses them of disbelief and says, you'll look for me, but you'll die in your sin. And they don't respond to that. In verse 22, they say, will he kill himself? Since he says, where I'm going, you cannot come. They totally misinterpret it. This is another one of those John ironies because, of course, Jesus doesn't kill himself. He lays his life down willingly. He says himself, no one's going to take it from me. I give it. And so that statement itself in verse 22 shows the arrogance and disbelief that can exist when they hear what is given to them by Christ and what will happen if they do not believe and yet they go, how could this be? Is he going to kill himself? They don't respond to what they've said, to what he said about them dying. They respond to what he said about him leaving. Missing completely. Those matters that have eternal significance. So there's that accusation. The confusion. The confusion comes because 
misunderstanding origin or identity, if you'd put it that way, leads to misunderstanding Jesus. Jesus, again, is going to highlight the difference between him and the people to whom he's talking. He's going to show the difference between who he is and who they are. He's going to do that again just in a few verses in the coming weeks where he talks about where he comes from, where they come from. His authority and their authority. And so you're going to see this division. Now, we're going to talk about this more later, again, in coming weeks. But Genesis 3 even shows us this division, the battle between the seed of the serpent and the seed of the woman. That there is this tension between deception and drawing people away from God and reconciling people to God. Now, listen to how Jesus says this. This is important for us in understanding that maybe, maybe Jesus is exposing even our own hearts, our pride, arrogance, and our confusion that we call confidence. So this is what he says. Listen to the, listen to the, the differences. You are from below of this earth, this realm that exists in contrast to God. I am from above. You are of this world. I am not of this world. I told you that you would die in your sins. For unless you believe that I am he, you will die in your sins. So they said to him, who are you? Who are you then? Again, okay, if you are, if you're saying these things, who are you? Jesus said, just what I've been telling you from the beginning I have much to say, much to judge, but he who sent me is true, and I declare to the world what I have heard from him. They did not understand, irony again, or understatement, they did not understand that he had been speaking to them about the Father. So look at these these contrasts. He comes from heaven, sent by the Father. They're from below, of this earth, not of heavenly origin. They are of the earth. He is above, not of this world. But remember this, because you might hear this and go, wait a minute, does that mean God is far off? The the incarnation teaches us that God is not far off. It shows us that God cares about us to bridge the separation that exists. And yet Jesus is saying it is that separation which keeps you from understanding what is going on. Weird Al, you weren't expecting a Weird Al reference, were you? Weird Al has this song from when I was like a high schooler. It's called Everything You Know Is Wrong. Everything You Know Is Wrong. Mm. I'm drinking, sorry. I just couldn't couldn't, couldn't do it. I was about to, but my throat, you know. 
couldn't do it. Um, but that's the accusation being given. You, are, you come from a completely different place with a completely different understanding of what is right and what is wrong, what is true and what is not true, what is black and what is right, uh, light and darkness. You come, and really, we come from darkness, and he is light. He listens to the Father and reveals what the Father has given him to reveal, and it is not received by darkened hearts. I would argue that one of the uh, preeminent virtues of the Christian life, I'll say should be, humility. The recognition that in the matters that were most important, we got it wrong. That we didn't have it all together that we were not as good as we presented ourselves to be, that we were not as right as we presented ourselves to be, that we were not as honest or as loving as we wanted people to think that we are or were. And yet, God, in his love for us, sent the Son that we, that we might be reconciled to God through his death, burial, resurrection, the spirit that is within us, that we can be made right, And so the disposition of the Christian should never be arrogant. Because we see what we've been brought from. Now many people here, and praise God for it, many people here came to faith young in life. And so they don't necessarily have the stark contrast of who they were and who they are. And I do really praise God for those stories because they get to avoid a lot of the stupidity that many of us got to live out. And by God's grace, hopefully not make many of the same mistakes that their parents or grandparents or friends or teachers or uh, Sunday school class teachers like, like that they did. But for those who did come to faith later in life, where you can remember a darkness to light moment, where you can remember the deception in which you lived and the truth of the gospel, where you can remember the sins and the direction in which you were headed and the freedom that you have received through Christ. Many people who come to faith later in life read that, they're like, yep, yeah, I know that. I was that. I lived that. And there often is, I find, in people who came to faith as adults, a different kind of edge to how they view statements like this because there was a time when it was totally foreign. And I'm going to use the phrase, it became true. Not that it that turned true, but it became true because they realized it to be such. Right? That the Lord opened their minds and their hearts and they saw it and they went, oh my gosh. So the truth of the gospel entered into that darkened heart and they saw it. And they were changed by it. And I think sometimes we read these statements and go, I don't know, I mean, yeah, I mean, I guess. Because we don't realize without Christ how bad off we were. 
We've used this before. This is something we'll share. I'll share in one of my classes where you know, depravity means not that you're as bad as you could be, but you're as bad off as you could be. You can always be worse. You can always do worse. That's that, that, I mean, that, that's easy. You can always do worse. Be worse. But with regard to depravity, you could be no worse off. Because as bad as it gets is being separated from God. That's, that is the worst position to be in. And Jesus is saying this. Telling them. And you might even go, well, why is he not being clear? Like, no, uh... Unless you believe that I am he, you will die in your sins. Pretty clear. He's not putting a veil over them going, well, I'm just going to talk really funky, and then maybe if they get it, good on them. He, he is being abundantly clear that without him, without belief in him, without trusting him, they will die. And yet, they refuse to believe. They hear all these statements, and they just say, well, who are you? Verse 25. Who are you? You want us to believe in you? Who are you? And he's like, I've been telling you from the beginning. Much to say, much to judge. And I know Jesus' statements on judge can sometimes sound funny because he says, I didn't come to judge the world. And then other times he's like, I have much to judge. You're like, wait a minute, which one is it? Do you have much to judge or did you not come to judge? You heard Rock in communion share this just even last week, where, yes, Jesus, even as he is speaking, I'll put it this way, that, that even as he's talking to people, he is, he is discerning and in, in, in revealing errors in their heart or in their thinking, which is bringing a level of judgment on what's being said. But it's not the final judgment. It is not the coming judgment. That from his death, burial, and resurrection to now, we are wanting people to trust in him before that judgment comes. Much to say, much to judge, they will not listen. Even though he has been speaking only what has been given to him by his heavenly father. But they did not understand. Well, the passage tells us why they didn't understand. Because Jesus says, you're from below. You're of this world. You're caught up in its systems and its ways of thinking. You're caught up in its beliefs and its practices and its habits. You're caught up in its darkness. So you can't hear it. We can treat Jesus the same way. Temptations to do this in the same way, where we hear some of what he says, but we can't go all the way there with him. You know what I mean? Where we go, okay, well, I love Jesus as a teacher. He has some really good teaching. And that's true. He is a great teacher. And he taught some really good things. 
And if you listened to those things that he taught, even on an earthly level, and tried to live them out, that in general, your kind of station of life would improve in some way, but it wouldn't improve from darkness to light, from death to life, because you would be trying to live out what he said as a dead woman or a dead man. You wouldn't get there. And so we lump Jesus in, it's like maybe this good teacher with this good idea, he's kind of our consultant, Jesus the consultant, right? You know, Jesus Christ, LLC, and you just go to it and you go, okay, well. Uh, you, you have these statements and you, and you just, you just kind of go to the Bible and go, I need, a, I need a verse or an idea or a thought or a teaching or I need something to, to help me out. And we're actually not taking Jesus for who he is. We're just taking Jesus for the bits and pieces that help us in any given moment. And the problem with that is when the moments pass and we feel better, we just kind of go, that was nice, Jesus. We're going to kind of take your word and take your truth. We're just going to put it over here because we've gotten the issues we had problems with resolved. We'll see a problem with that even next week when he begins talking about abiding and how abiding in him reveals, our, reveals us as his disciples, we'll say. Because if you abide in me, you are truly my disciples. Jesus can't be just your consultant, where you take some of the good things he says, and you kind of put those up and hold on to them, and you move along when that's, when that's happened. Adding him to a list of other gods, because he does say some pretty cool things, but maybe he doesn't address something the way that you'd like it to be addressed. Because Jesus just becomes our life consultant or he just kind of gets into the crowd and he doesn't stand out anymore because he's just one of many gods and we diminish Jesus when we do this and the statement Jesus is about to give prevents us from being able to with a clear conscience diminish him he says this in verse 28 Jesus said to them when you have lifted up the son of man That phrase in John ties to his death on the cross. When you have lifted up the Son of Man, then you will know that I am He, and that I do nothing on my own authority, but I speak just as the Father taught me. And He who sent me is with me, He has not left me alone, for I always do the things that are pleasing to him. So they respond. Let's just follow the flow. Jesus gives them a statement. And he says they're going to die in their sin. They go, where are you going? Not, what does that mean? What does that mean we're going to die in our sin? What does that mean that we're going to die They don't ask for clarification on who they are. They go, where are you going? And he gives them the instruction on who they are and who he is, which is why they have such a hard time hearing him, because they speak the language of the world. And so they can't process it. So then, to be abundantly clear, as if he hasn't been, Jesus says this, summarizes the clarification like this, that seeing Christ crucified 
clarifies who he is for us. And you can say then what we need. Now, I do think in this, he is speaking to a specific place in time. Meaning, you're going to see me crucified. He's saying that to the crowds who are there. You're going to see me, and you'll realize what it means. You're going to see me. Then you will know that I am he, and that I do nothing of my own authority, but I speak just as the Father taught me. The working out of God's purposes for us and for our salvation. And he says to those people listening, when you lift up the Son of Man, you will know that I am He. And so we hear, maybe hear that and go, uh, okay, well, that's great, but I wasn't there. I wasn't there. I wasn't in the crowd there. He wasn't teaching me in that moment. I wasn't one of the ones who helped lift him up on the cross in that place and in that time. And so, what in the world? Because, again, remember, as we are reading the scriptures, we're reading from people who have written, New Testament, written after the events have happened. Death, burial, resurrection has happened. The Spirit has come into the world. He is filling believers. And these, are, these letters and books are being written for us to understand. And so he's, Jesus is speaking in a place and a time. But our understanding of Scripture is that doesn't mean it's not for us. We don't put it in a box and go, I wasn't there, so I'm not sure what to do. So, so what do we do with a passage like that where he just says he's convicting the crowds on who they are. But it's still true here, and here's the part that matters for us. Who Jesus is is the most important decision you will ever make in your life. Who Jesus is is the most important decision you will make in your life. And we see, even in this passage, who Jesus is. Jesus is the one who can, through his word, show us who we are. He, through the aid of the Spirit, I could put it that way, reveals that sin. You read his word, the Spirit works, the sin is revealed, we go, oh my gosh, what do I do with that? He provides the solution. The Son of Man lifted up for us, for our salvation. So how do we respond to something like this? Since for us the crucifixion, the death, burial, resurrection, ascension of Christ has happened, the question is, what do you do with it? Do you, because of your darkened state, darkened heart, go, oh, I don't think that is really worth listening to. Many people have made that declaration. 
We should pray they change their minds. Who is the one lifted up? Who is the one who died for our sins? Who is the one who gave himself for us? What do we do with that? Now, knowing you guys, most of you here, the ones I know, do follow Jesus. He has saved you. You are his. You're indwelled by his spirit. It is glorious, and I love it. I love getting with you and talking about the Lord and what he's done and how you're growing and what you're seeing and what you're struggling with and sins that you've confessed and ways that you're finding his forgiveness and ways you're enjoying Monday because it's Monday and you have the Lord. I love that. And so when we see these things as Christians, what do we do? Well, one is to rejoice. We rejoice because God has shown us just how good he is. He has has shown us the depth of our sin and the goodness of the Son, the sacrifice that has been made. And another, and and I'll beat this drum as long as I need to, another is, we have no other recourse but to pray for people in our lives who don't know the Lord and share him with them. Because we, can't, we, we cannot make a darkened heart undarkened. We cannot make an unbeliever a believer. We cannot make somebody who is antagonistic towards Jesus, antagonistic. Yeah, it was for you, Courtney, yeah. We can't make those changes. This is a battle that is not fought just with our words, with our ability to persuade, with just how smart we are, how many degrees we have, or how long we've been at it, or all of the the tricks we might be able to use like car salesmen to get people into the Jesus car before they leave the lot. That's not what we're able to do. And so we must, we must pray and storm heaven with our prayers, asking that God would reveal to people their need. And that they would see the Son and trust in Him. Jesus leaves us without excuse. He has revealed from the beginning who He is. Even if, you know, not even in John, but if you read the other Gospels and you read in Luke the birth narrative of Jesus, there's no hiding it from the beginning. What he will do, how he will save. And yet, many of us still would rather just be convinced we're right because admitting we're wrong is humiliating. Admitting that we've gotten it wrong and we've built our lives in a completely different direction is embarrassing. Our Bible reading for yesterday, if you're kind of reading Monday through Saturday, had us read in Psalm 36. The first two verses of Psalm 36 read like this. 
Transgression speaks to the wicked deep in his heart. There is no fear of God before his eyes. For he flatters himself in his own eyes. The unbeliever, the one without God, flatters himself, flatters herself in his own eyes, esteems himself so proudly in his or her own eyes that his iniquity cannot be found out and hated. So flattered and esteemed in our own right that we don't even think we have sin. We might just call them mistakes. And everybody makes mistakes. Yeah. But mistakes separate us from God forever. And yet in our pride and self-confidence, we esteem ourselves too highly to stoop. And yet that is exactly what Jesus did so that we might see him and find him and be saved by him. We should bow. His way, not our way. His life, not our life. He's right. We're wrong. He is our Lord. He is our Savior. He is our everything. 